Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about whether the scriptures are holy. This may seem like a strange and self-evident thing to discuss. After all, we do say the holy scriptures. So why is it that this is the question we're taking? Well, to get there, we have to move a bit indirectly. We're going to start by looking at some of the usual ways scripture is characterized or disputed. The kind of questions are usually that are usually asked are whether the scriptures are reliable. Are they historically accurate? Are they inerrant or infallible? Most basically, are they true? Well, this comes out of a particular historical story. Uh, it starts back in the time of the Reformation, when, of course, Luther famously raises objections to church practice on the basis of the scripture itself. He points out contradictions between what the church is doing and what the Bible is saying. And this seems at first to be a surefire strategy to effect a Reformation. The problem is, very quickly, his own Roman opponents come back at him with both their own biblical arguments as well as pointing out how difficult it is to solve things on the basis of the Bible, which is further confirmed by lots of other reformers coming along with very different views of what Reformation should look like according to the Bible. And after that, we have not only Roman and Lutheran interpretations of Scripture, we have Calvinist, Zwinglian, Anabaptist, Spiritualist, and on and on down to the present day. Well, one attempt to try to solve this problem that emerged some centuries after the Reformation was in biblical scholarship, looking at the textual sources of the Bible, their historical location, linguistic comparisons, archaeology, all sorts of things, trying to get at that firm foundation, at which point we would have no more questions, no more doubts, no more multiplicity of interpretations, but the plain, hard, rational, scientific truth. This also has run aground in many ways, and we find ourselves now at the far end of that process, perhaps with more interpretations of the Bible than ever, more disputes than ever, and a lot less certainty about what even human reason can accomplish. So today we're going to start by looking more deeply into what the problems are in these kind of approaches and the terms they use to define the scripture, and uh, from there we'll go on to how we can talk about the scripture as holy. So, Dad, I'm going to hand it off to you now. You've spent a lot of time in your career looking at these issues of what it means to interpret Scripture and how, um, and a lot of uh, dead ends, you might call them. So why don't you start telling us your approach, especially to historical criticism and a more fundamentalist biblicism and what they rather curiously have in common. Okay, great. Thanks. Um I think the, let me cut to the chase though and kind of give a foretaste of the moral of the story before I answer uh, directly what you asked me to speak to. And that is simply this, a false and exaggerated praise of the Bible gives rise to a false and exaggerated criticism of the Bible. Uh, and what we need, what we need is to understand the Bible for what it really is, a collection of human testimonies and witnesses to the Word of God, uh, which is sorted out, as we spoke of in our first po podcast, by the Word of God, which is the resurrection of the crucified one, the proclamation of God's act of cosmic salvation that took place on the first Easter morn. Uh, today, Perceptive readers have seen that in our culture, uh, 
uh, it's no longer the uh, criticism of the Bible that it is um, unreliable or untrue historically. Much more painful and penetrating are criticisms of the Bible that it's a literature of racism and violence, uh, which exists to exclude other dissident voices. Wow, that's wow. a pretty painful criticism of the Bible. So not that it's false, but that it's toxic. Beautifully said, exactly right. Uh, it's Maybe it's false and it's toxic, according, according to hostile voices. To get to the root of this, we have to understand the false and exaggerated praise of the Bible that developed after the Reformation inevitably gave rise to a counterattack that exists in this false and exaggerated criticism uh, of the Bible. Historical criticism, as it is called, arose during the Enlightenment, and it was an attempt to get past the interminable religious and theological disputes in Europe that gave occasion to the wars of religion, a terrible period in European history. It lasted almost a hundred years. Uh, the historical critics said, look it, it's not the Bible that interprets nature. It's nature that interprets the Bible. Or perhaps it's not the Bible that interprets history. It's history that interprets the Bible. So what you have to do then is rationally establish what is naturally possible and what is historically true. And on that basis, then you can criticize the text of Scripture and show, uh, reveal its real meaning as ideological uh, interpretations uh, of history and nature. This uh, historical uh, criticism of the Bible is really in many ways then developed uh, into a totally atheological or non-theological reading of the Bible. And today we talk about that uh, in the academy as a religious studies approach in which uh, you use not only natural science and historical uh, historiography, but also the social sciences, perhaps, uh, as platforms with which to read and interpret uh, the Bible. And this is but a continuation of the bad habit of seeking a philosophical foundation upon which to erect your interpretation of Scripture, as we talked about in our first podcast. But let me just back up a little bit more and say, what was the false and exaggerated praise of the Bible that gave rise to historical criticism? Right. It seems like uh, if you regard the scriptures as holy, how, how could you go overboard in praising them? What would be uh, exaggerated in a bad way in your praise of scripture? I'd like to hear Well, uh, I have a hypothesis here, and someday I have to work on developing this more clearly. Uh, it goes all the way back to the beginnings of scholastic uh, theology in Anselm of Canterbury, who was trying to respond to the criticisms of the Bible by Jews, the rabbis, by Muslims, and by the philosophers, all of whom had converged in a kind of fundamental critique of Christianity, 
if God wanted to forgive people, why didn't God just do it instead of sending his son in the form of a human person to suffer and die on the cross? What an ignoble thing for God to do. Right? <laughs> right. And that was the core of the critique. Uh, Anselm is trying to answer the question, why was the cross of the incarnate Son of God necessary for human salvation? Because he was under this pressure from uh, rabbis, uh, Muslims, and uh, philosophers criticizing the Christian scriptures. And we can actually go back to an earlier stage of history, the rise of Islam which codified some of the Jewish and philosophical critiques of Christianity from the patristic period. Muhammad was appalled at the Jewish and Christian scriptures. He said the original and true religion is submission to the will of God. That's what Islam means. That's what being a Muslim means, someone who submits to the will of God. And if that's true, Abraham was a true Muslim, and Jesus was a true Muslim. But all sorts of additions and accretions covered up and obscured uh, the faithful obedience of Abraham and Jesus. And these Jewish and Christian additions to the basic truth of Islam are then codified in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament. And all of them have the effect of making the universal and true religion of submission to the will of God, particular to the Jews who now claim because of Abraham to be the one and only chosen people, to the Christians who claim that Jesus is the one and only true son of God. And uh, Muhammad said, this is just false. These are corrupt uh, additions to the basic truth. And so the giving of the Holy Quran for Muhammad was a matter of pure listening and recitation. Uh, the word Quran means recitation. And there's a famous uh, episode uh, recounted where Muhammad was tempted to add a couple of female deities as consorts to Allah. And he actually, really? yeah, and he, he, I didn't, didn't know he that. wrote that, it's the satanic verses of Salman Rushdie fame. Muhammad initially wrote that into the recitations, and then he was terribly convicted of a terrible blasphemous sin. And that illustrates uh, the uh, danger for Islam of adding human additions to the pure recitation of the word of God. I'm, so I'm beginning to see here where, where a, a Christian doctrine of inerrancy or infallibility would emerge in this very deep anxiety about falsifying the pure, totally other, transcendent word of God, adding things in, saying things that can't be said as the ultimate crime against God. Right. That was exactly the Islamic critique. It's, Islam calls that shirk, blasphemy and so forth. And that Islamic critique of medieval Christianity had a powerful traction. And through the centuries, uh, uh, it accelerated until the schism of the 16th century. And then it amazingly became internalized 
what an irony this is, on especially on the Protestant side. But not with any sort of consciousness that no. that's where its origins lie. It's just worked its way into the DNA of Christian it's thought. Deeply buried. It takes a great deal to un- uncover this and reconstruct this. But you can imagine, after the time of the Reformation schism, after Protestant churches and Roman Catholicism separated, the argument became the very sterile argument about authority. I call that a sterile argument because the Catholics of the Counter-Reformation were saying, the Bible is just like the Muslims say, a pretty complicated, layered book, and if you let people subjectively interpret it, you'll be all over the map with 10,000 competing interpretations. Therefore, you need a divinely inspired papacy to limit disputes and control interpretation. To which the Protestants replied, we don't need a living pope, we have a paper pope in the Bible. I'm being a little bit ironic there. And, and, and so the whole idea that the Bible was a self-interpreting miraculous book uh, was held up ideologically, though in practice it generated all these, uh, the, the whole long sorry, sorry story of So on both sides, it's really, it's really quite question-begging, because on the Protestant side, there's the obvious problem that it's not obvious, and there are lots of competing interpretations. And on the Roman side, it just pushes the problem back one further remove. So instead of believing arbitrarily and absolutely in a text, you believe arbitrarily, absolutely in a historically conditioned person to tell you what the text actually says. Yeah, I guess that's right. And it's sterile. That's why it's a sterile, a sterile dispute. You just can't get anywhere. You can't get anywhere with it. And trying to use the Bible that way kind of resolves to this question, which the historical critics then took up and drove a a truck through the hole that was created by this question. And that question was, are the scriptures true? To which the Protestants said, absolutely. And the Catholics said, only when interpreted uh, magisterially by the Pope. And the historical critics said, well, we're going to play hoist you on your own petards here. (laughs) Is the scripture true? And then natural and historical criticism uh, exploded uh, that uh, opening. So that's why we want to get back to the more primal uh, question, are the scriptures holy? Are the scriptures able to sanctify? How would the scriptures... Uh, do this work and in that way uh, uh, receive their proper uh, place and and, uh, assigned role in Christian uh, theology. Okay, so we're going to transition a bit now to the question of the holiness, but let me just ask before we go there, are we therefore abandoning truth claims about the scripture, or are we giving up entirely on trying to assess whether they are true, or is that something that has to be talked about after we talk about them being holy, like it's subsequent to rather than prior to the holiness question? Uh, yes, if the, boy, that's, uh, <laughs> I don't mean, I don't, I I don't mean to ham and haw at all. I think that the question of truth, of course, is in some senses, uh, some sense uh, crucial. Uh, But as we talked about in our first podcast, 
uh, the truth of the gospel is something that only God can verify by fulfilling his promises. And derivatively, the truth of Christian theology is whether it, uh, here and now, uh, in history, in time and space, concretely is able to identify the God of the gospel and distinguish that God from the idols and the demons uh, of culture. And the matrix in which this identification of the God of the gospel uh, is executed certainly are the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures uh, are holy in that uh, collectively in whole and in part, they uh, are there to help us identify the God of the gospel. St. Paul articulated this hermeneutic when he wrote at the end of the book of Romans, that whatever has been written in former times has been written for our sakes, we, that is, Christians upon whom the end of the ages has come, that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So there's not just a objective set of data we're looking at, but there's also an audience to whom the data is addressed. Right. And you could say that kind of abstractly by saying church and scripture are correlative concepts, that that scripture and church go together. Uh, You can't have a church without scripture. You can't have scripture without a community of faith that reads and receives the testimony of the scriptures. So then to hearken back again to our last episode, when we ask truth questions about the things recorded in scripture, we can engage in the ad hoc apologetics approach, not trying to systematically prove every word, every fact, every detail, true or false by some external standard. But I'm thinking here, for example, of N.T. Wright's writing about the resurrection and trying to, you know, simply explain, this is what it meant to people. This is what it didn't mean to people. They knew the difference between a ghost and a risen body. Um, They knew the difference between what was happening in their hearts and what was happening on the beach. You know, sort of, sort of these kind of things. The the lack of testimony to a, a grave site of worship. I don't know these kind of things. So they can address on some level these basic questions of truth to encounter specific, localized, contemporary issues, but not an attempt to say you know the whole thing as a uh, is scientifically provably true, quite apart from any community or belief that you bring to it. I think that's absolutely right, and that's in fact when you look at scriptural commentaries. Through through the ages, that's what good exegetes are doing. They're, say, they're, they're taking up for their time and place common sense objections or, 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 or perplexities about the text and, and exploring ways of, of clarifying that to contemporary readers. Okay. All right. So let's now move directly into the question of whether the scriptures are holy. If we're taking, as you said, the idea that scripture and church are correlative, that the scripture is for a community, for the intention of making the community holy as God is holy, uh, to to build off of Leviticus 19, Um, and that there has to be a church to hear the scripture um, and to receive it, interpret it, live according to it. So the question now is the holiness of scripture. So I'm going to make it really hard for you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to give you three passages of scripture um, to wrestle with, like uh, Jacob with the angel. (laughs) 
So the first one comes from Joshua 8. This is about the destruction of the city of Ai. So let me just read you a passage here. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Okay, that's a, a beautiful piece of holy making. <laughs> I was going to say, so that was chosen, obviously, for the, the horror factor <laughs> involved. Let me give you now a totally different oh, piece of whoa, scripture. Whoa, whoa, from... can we do these one at a time? <laughs> no, no, I, I want you to hear the, the whole set together, right. and then we'll, because they're, I've chosen them for different reasons. Okay. Um, so the next text I want to read is from Nehemiah 7, but I'm not going to get very far, and you'll see why. The number of the men of the people of Israel... The sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. On and on and on for verses. Just this census of uh, names and sons and people. It is, uh, rather than horrifying, it is extraordinarily boring. And again, uh, how does the, <laughs> it raises the question, how is this a holy or holy-making text of scripture? And finally, last one, this is only one verse. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I chose that one not because it's horrifying or boring, but because it seems to be a plain statement of Jesus that seems plainly to have been falsified. So here are three very different the texts of scripture, but they're all within the canon of what we call holy scripture. So if we're talking about scripture as holy, how are these holy in themselves? How are they holy making for the church that receives them? And how does this help us think or does not help us think about this question of whether the scriptures are holy? Go. Go. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with your first reading from Joshua 8. And uh, let's revert by way of preface to my initial statement that false and exaggerated claims for the Bible give rise to false and exaggerated criticisms of the Bible. And the violence in the book of Joshua is a prime example. Uh, of the contemporary uh, false and exaggerated attack on the Bible as a book uh, of religious uh, violence. Now, that's a, to, to defend a thesis like that would require a commentary on the whole book of Joshua. Hey, you should do yeah, that. I should do that sometime in my spare time, huh? Uh, yeah. Uh, when does that book do yeah, again? I have to write it this summer. Uh, so anyway, the interesting thing about the story of 
the destruction of Ai in Joshua 8 is that it's prefaced by the story of Achan and his family. Achan was a, a, a member of the Israelites under Joshua's leadership. And Joshua had strictly commanded the Israelites uh, not to keep any booty, that everything was to be devoted to the Lord. That means uh, destroyed uh, uh, in, a, in a Holocaust offering. It should clarify that Holocaust in this case doesn't refer to the genocide of the Jews in the 20th century. Bad choice of yeah. words nowadays. It's the traditional word for a burnt offering is a Holocaust, right? Right. And so anyway, Achan goes into a conquered territory and uh, grabs a bunch of silver and gold and a beautiful garment or something like that and buries it in his tent. And the next time Joshua leads Israel out to war, they're defeated. And Joshua is stricken. What, what, what happened? Why isn't the Lord helping us the way he's promised to do so? And he discerns that someone of the Israelites has stolen booty that was supposed to be totally devoted to the Lord, sacrificed to the Lord. And through a long story, Achan uh, is discovered and confesses his guilt and then pays the ultimate price uh, for his crime. This uh, more complicated story then indicates that Joshua's war of conquest was not motivated by the normal motives for which people go to war, namely a booty, a capturing the enemy live and turning them all into slaves. Yeah, it's much better when you just kill them all straight well, out. It, it, the, of <laughs> course, this raises the crucial point that this is a culture very distant from ours, very different from ours. Well, we'd like to think so anyway. Well, yeah, that's, an, that's another question. Have we really progressed all that much when you think of the wars of the 20th century, whether something like what Joshua did was not more commonplace. But I'm sorry, I'm taking us afield. Let, let's direct this back then what you're saying towards really the question, is this holy? How is it holy? How does it make us holy? Right. And I think there's two kinds of answers that you can make to that. First of all, if you follow the text more carefully, you uncover certain kinds of nuances in the story, even though they're specific to a distant culture and military uh, ideology uh, than anything we would want to affirm today, uh, you can see that there was an anti-imperialistic and anti-military, as, as funny as it sounds, an anti-militarist theme going on here. The holy wars in Joshua are miraculous, supernatural wars in which God conducts the battle and Joshua and his army is basically just doing the mop-up operation. So you can't take the miraculous element out of it. it it's in, in, intrinsic to the stories there. Now, no, no militarist imperialist today would calculate on miracles and going to war, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. It's not a handbook for war today or any. And in fact, later on in Israel's history, the prophets took up this theme of miraculous warfare to criticize the kings of Israel and Judah uh, for relying on their own military power and prowess and, and stratagems uh, rather than on the power of God. And secondly, when you take out the motive of greed, acquisition of booty, when you take away that motive from warfare, you do a lot to uh, undercut 
imperial strategies of aggression. And third, uh, one more one more element here. We know that the cities of Canaan, like I, and their kings, were vassals of Egypt. And Joshua and his people came in and did not actually conquer and settle any of these Canaanite cities. Just as our text in Joshua 8 says, they were burned to the ground and reduced to a heap of rubble. The incoming Israelites were not uh, to become little uh, empires, extensions of Egyptian hegemony. Uh, They were instead to have a different kind of lifestyle, uh, an agricultural lifestyle, living in the mountains, ecking out a living in a federation uh, based on different notions of power and justice. So I think I'm not trying to apologize for the violence in uh, the book of Joshua, but I think all these kinds of historical and literary nuances mitigate a, sur- a superficial reading of it is a simply a text of violence. Right. And I think the the kind of examples you gave just now in order to explicate Joshua really militate against the proof texting approach, because to really get Joshua, you had to go far forward to the kings and the prophets and see how they used it, how the story was reinterpreted um, to get a, a more global picture. So it's not simply the story of I by itself as a holy making thing, but the whole big picture, long-term historical portrait of war that Joshua is a scene in along the way. I think that really relates back uh, nicely to what we talked about in our last podcast about this um, eschatological and historical orientation of Christian faith as opposed to these kind of pristine platonic principles or notions or verses that are simply plucked out and then used as marching orders. Uh, what George Lindbeck called propositionalism, right? Yeah, so if you take that kind of approach, Sarah, that you just articulated, you need a couple of things theologically. You need a notion of canon or a notion of the overall story from Genesis to Revelation. What's the basic plot line of that master narrative? the history of the whole world from God's perspective. You need a notion of canon uh, as mass, and in the sense of a master narrative. So do you think we could then say, this is, this is a, a, a bit daring perhaps, could we say that no verse, chapter, or book of the scripture is holy without all the other verses, chapters, and books of the Bible? I would say yes. I think that, that that's a tall order, of course, because you, to integrate properly the part with the whole uh, is why you have scriptural scholars <laughs> who work on this full time. I, and I, I agree that it's a daunting task. But on the other side of it, uh, if you also have, in addition to your canon, your master narrative, if you have a cast of characters, a dramatis personae, right? If you have a cast of characters, then you can uh, identify the main agents in the story. And then third, if you have a articulation of this, this, what we talked about earlier, that by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If you have um, a statement of the good news of the Bible, an articulation of why the Bible delivers to us a gospel word of God, 
And you put those three elements together theologically, and you, any person uh, equipped with that can adequately read the Bible, safely read the Bible. And also those three, those three uh, requirements, they emerge organically from the scripture itself. It's not a, an external or alien rule, though I, I would say it's nevertheless accessible, like the idea of seeing who the main characters are. I mean, every, every story we read and we live by our stories or every story we hear, you know, we quickly identify these are the main characters. This is the hero. This is the villain. These are the minor characters. Right. This is the kind of story it's going to be. I mean, that that is a generally accessible notion. But at the same time, it emerges organically from the scripture itself. So if you read the scripture, you see that God is the main character and um, the, the main uh, interlocutor with God is Israel. And then there are all these other major to minor secondary characters through the whole thing. So the, the two kind of come together that way. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I would simply amplify that a little bit more and say that it is the God of the gospel, namely, as we talked about last time, the father of the son on whom he breathes his spirit. Uh, the early Christian creeds evolved contemporaneously with the canon of the New Testament and so forth to identify the God of the gospel. Uh, and this was inculcated to the catechumens as they prepared for baptism. And part of the baptism ritual was their confession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, along with relative clauses that biblically identified the Father as the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, and as of the Son, as our Lord Jesus Christ, who has suffered and died, etc., right? Right. So, so to approach the Bible correctly, you have to come in at least knowing who the main characters are and what the basic plot is. And if you don't have that, then a story like Joshua's 8, Plucked Out, is going to seem disturbing, wrong. We hope it seems disturbing and wrong, but set within this larger narrative, knowing who the main characters are. Um, it allows you to see how it relates to, contributes to, is critiqued by other things within this big story. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and of course, not to take all the rough edges off of Joshua, uh, like I said several times, it's not any kind of military ethos we would want emulated today. So what do you do, you know, with these passages that uh, talk about violence? Well, one great church father, Origen of Alexandria, I think rightly spiritualized it. And it was a very fascinating uh, process of reasoning he used because the Hebrew name Joshua is actually the same name that was given to Jesus Christ. Yeshua in Hebrew or Aramaic, and it translated into Greek, Joshua of the Old Testament was Jesus, just as the New Testament Greek name for Jesus is Jesus. And as Origen was reading his Septuagint, his Greek Bible of the book of Joshua, he said, here is a profound and mysterious clue to the true meaning of the book of Joshua. Which sure needs the help. Which sure needs the help. <laughs> it's really about the battle of Jesus against sin, death, and devil, his victory over sin, death, and devil. And therefore, we who follow Jesus, like the soldiers of Israel follow Joshua, it's about our uh, internal jihad, as it were, our own battle 
against uh, sin and violence and, and so forth and so on. Uh, so I don't think that we, you asked, how are the scriptures holy? Well, they're holy in this way too, that we interpret the uh, scriptures in the light of the gospel uh, message uh, of Jesus Christ. And that's a great example of how allegory, which uh, Protestants tend not to be real fond of, can serve the purposes of the gospel beautifully. Allegory seems like a good way to deal with Joshua. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, as long as Origen took a, a lot of liberties in ignoring certain parts of the book of Joshua. So I think <laughs> I can hardly argue with that. <laughs> so we, we just have to do that a little bit more forthrightly and honestly. Let's move on to Nehemiah and Mark 9, right? Yeah, sure. Maybe we can do these a little more briefly. I hope but, so. Yeah, well, ahead. this census from Nehemiah 7 has no interest uh, for us except a historical one, that, the, <laughs> that upon returning from the exile, a census was taken, right? But it does have, the book of Nehemiah does have a certain important and significant role to play in the unfolding drama of God's history with Israel. Uh, namely, that the returning exiles were appalled at intermarriage between the children of Israel and non-Israelites, and there was a strong reiteration of Jewish uh, national or ethnic identity in the form of uh, forbidding intermarriage, the circumcision rule, the kosher rule, so forth and so on. Those basic decisions that were made at the time of Nehemiah defined in much intertestamental Judaism. And we find in the gospel stories that our Lord uh, regularly ran up against the uh, decisions that were made at the time of Nehemiah in his uh, liberty with respect to keeping Sabbath and eating of foods and his liberty with respect to engaging with impure or contaminated uh, people, or even, for example, the Syrophoenician woman, the famous story, and so forth and so on. So does Nehemiah 7 and its list of census lists uh, speak to us in any meaningful way today? Only as a piece of Israel's history with God that... Um, now. Now, I would say, well, you, you made a case for, uh, for Joshua 8, so I'm going to make a case for Nehemiah 7 more than, more than it sounds like you're willing to go. For me, I get, I get two things out of this. One is in the larger context of the intermarriage question. Of course, nowadays, it is very repugnant to us, especially in the U.S., when we know about the horrible miscegenation laws that prevented, for example, blacks and whites from marrying because of the, the horror at the hybrid children and so forth. Um, so it's, it's hard to approach this uh, stricture without feeling that. But I think there's also a very real sense in which cultures and religions are lost when the community is diluted beyond a certain point. And this is a very small and fragile Israel that's left. And although it goes against certainly my own as well, um, instincts about have uh, arranged marriage is 
is very uh, repulsive to me as a contemporary American and so forth. But there is a real question of the community's survival. And so I think it's impossible to read those disturbing intermarriage texts apart from the question, will there actually be an Israel anymore? And the truth is, if all Israelites marry non-Israelites, give it two or three generations, there won't be any left. And I think this has not ceased to be a, a problem for minority communities all around the world. But to push it even further here, I've, you know, read through these, this is not the only long, boring census, and there's lots of long, boring genealogies in the scripture as well. Uh, What I get out of this for today is that every Jew counts. And I think that is something that we would share um, between believing Jews and believing Christians today in a way that Christians culpably have not shared in the past. Uh, I think of all the ways in which the name of every Jew who was murdered in, in the Shoah is engraved in stone somewhere and remembered and honored. And I think we have a, a kind of deep and, you know, unsettling but profoundly important connection here between this apparently boring list of Jews in Nehemiah 7 and the fact that not just that every person is created in the image of God, that everyone is valued more than the sparrow, but that there is this particular concern that every Jew counts. And I think that's something that Christians with a lot of blood guilt on their hands for how we have treated Jews in the past should uh, maybe linger over these boring lists of Jews in the Old Testament and remember that every one of them matters. Yeah, I think that's lovely. I think that's a very profound reflection, and I'm, it's new to me. So thank you very much for uh, developing that and sharing that with us. All right, well, let's go on to Mark 9 now, and was Jesus wrong? <laughs> well, certainly this text is wrong, historically. Good dodge, Dad, good dodge. Certainly, certainly this text is historically wrong, but what's interesting, isn't it, is that it's nevertheless preserved in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and it, according to It's canonical whether or not it's true. It's canonical even though it's probably not true. You know, and I think that's the whole point of shifting the question from is it true to is it holy, right? There's a great deal that could be said about this uh, passage. The delay of the parousia, as it's called, the second coming of Christ, is a theme that dominates uh, the literature of the New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus was taken to mean that the beginning of the end had had occurred and that it would be simply a matter of time uh, before in its fullness and power the kingdom would come. A matter of time, but very brief time. Brief time, right? The Lord is near, right? And as as time wore on and it was realized that the kingdom of God was not coming in this way, uh, uh, as earlier had been anticipated, Mark chapter 13, for example, inserts this thought. The end is not yet. First, the gospel must be preached to all nations, and then the kingdom comes. So they're just four chapters apart from each other these two verses. Right. And so you have to put these two verses together uh, and and see that the delay of the parousia was meaningfully filled with the notion that uh, of the mission to the gospel mission to the nations. Right. Which is something you see across the New Testament and all the, the different books in their very different ways are all coming to terms with this um, painful 
complicated, unclear knitting together of the people of Israel who believe in Jesus, despite the vast majority of their brethren not believing in Jesus, with these Gentile outsiders who are also believing in Jesus quite unaccountably, and how how that has to reinterpret everything that's gone on, not just in Israel's history, but in even in Jesus' own history. I think that's right. And you know what the, the fruit of this is, of course, is this complexifies the reading of the Bible in one way, but it also delivers us from those fanatical readings which cherry-pick propositions out of the Bible and then turn them into timeless truths and so forth and so on. Instead, what we have in the Bible is the record and reflection of God's history with Israel, up through and including the Jew Jesus Christ, and then through the Jew Jesus Christ uh, onto the nations of the earth. And when you have a Bible like that, it's going to contain various voices, dissonant voices, uh, that are interacting with each other. Walter Brueggemann, who wrote a great theology of the Old Testament, kind of thematizes this insight that the Bible is a definite, not an indefinite, undefined, but a definite uh, record of dispute within the life of Israel. Not only dispute between Israelites, but disputes of Israelites with God. The Psalms of Lament, for example, or the book of Job, and he calls the the wisdom literature the counter-narrative to the dominant narrative of the God of the Exodus who saves his people. And the the wisdom literature says, well, not so fast. (laughs) Or in the New Testament, Jesus came to save us, but wait a minute, where is he? Right. Right. And I think what that means is that the use of the Bible becomes more deliberative than propositional. Uh, And I know that's kind of abstract sounding, but I think regarding the Bible as a book of truth propositions uh, is part of that false and exaggerated praise of the Bible, which produces uh, a counterattack of false and exaggerated criticism of the Bible. Uh, The Bible is instead uh, the record of the history of God with Israel and through Israel with all people. And to read the Bible, to engage in the Bible, is actually to enter into this history, this uh, relationship of the God of Israel through Jesus Christ with all peoples. So that would mean also that by entering it, we enter into the deliberation process, which sometimes is affirmative, affirming and praising, other times is angry or despairing. And then our goal to connect again back to our, our laying the groundwork of what theology is, is to try to seek out the productive, non-sterile, deliberative arguments and disputes, not in order to burn the other's village to the ground, to go back to Joshua 8, but in order to advance in our our deepening of our life with God in Israel and with the church. Uh, Yeah, I think that's, in other words, to enter into this history, to become a participant of this history of God and his ways with his creation through Israel and the Jew Jesus Christ uh, onto all nations. And I think if you put it that way, then I think we can talk uh, now today uh, on a more constructive uh, doctrine of Scripture. Okay, yeah, let's let's wrap up now with that 
uh, yeah, what you say, a constructive doctrine of scripture, and, and uh, again, thinking maybe for the practicality for our listeners, let's frame it in terms of how should believing Christians today approach the scripture um, and all the different ways? Um, what does it mean to go to scripture? What should they find there? What should they be looking for? How should they receive it, deal with it, think about it, enact it, and so forth? First, with the insight that the scripture being down to earth, materialistic, I suppose you could even say, a record of vanity and violence as well as humility and grace, all mixed together in a dramatic unfolding narrative, invites you in. Karl Barth wrote a beautiful essay early in his career, Welcome to the Strange New World of the Bible. And I think that would be kind of inspiring for us to reread and think that about that essay, Welcome to the Strange New World of the Bible, because it really means not to exploit the Bible uh, uh, by cherry-picking proof texts, but rather to enter into the covenant relationship of God with his people by uh, reading, meditating, sharing, debating, arguing within uh, and against the Bible, right? And I think that that would be to treat the Bible as the matrix of our faith. Matrix is a very interesting word. It, it's the, d- derived from the same word, Latin word, mater, mother. And, and we talked earlier about the fact that Bible and church are correlative concepts. So in his catechism, for example, uh, Luther said the church is the mother of us all who bears every Christian through the word of God. And I think that brings together these ideas that the church is the community of the Bible and the Bible is the book of the church. And it's in this matrix that faith is actually uh, elicited and formed. So we should talk, think of the scriptures as giving us the primary language of faith. And then instead of the Reformation slogan, sola scriptura, we should perhaps think of um, a, an adjustment and call the doctrine prima scriptura. Ah, scripture first rather than scripture only or scripture alone. Yeah, the sola scriptura is, is badly misunderstood by non by people who don't understand Latin, just to begin with grammatically. Like sola fide and sola gratia, sola scriptura is a Latin ablative, which has an instrumental sense. By grace alone, by faith alone, by the scriptures alone. In contrast to those three, the Reformation slogan, solus Christus, is in the nominative case. And so what is central to the Christian faith is Christ and his saving work. Christ alone is the Savior. Christ only, maybe, would be even more accurate in English. Christ only and not anything else. Whereas the other solas, they coexist, which would seem a contradiction in terms if they were exclusive of one another. But that's not what the sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura. You mean by means of, instrumental, by by means means of. of. And so if if we take this more pragmatic approach, approach to the authority of the scripture, prima scriptura, then we're saying that Uh, we encounter Christ and enter into the new covenant relationship 
with God through Christ, it is by the instrumentality of the scriptures. The scriptures then become sanctifying or holy as the Holy Spirit uses them to uh, elicit and form Christian faith. Okay, good. That sounds good. That sounds good. So, yeah, so I just want to briefly locate it. Um, uh, Many will know the sort of traditional Protestant Catholic argument over scripture versus tradition would be the sort of Protestant, you know, tradition goes down, scripture goes up. And the more kind of traditional Catholic view would be scripture plus tradition. They're kind of equal partners and so forth. But it sounds like you are sort of saying a pox on both their houses. <laughs> we need a different way of of thinking about this whole kind of relationship of the scripture set in the church related to the whole history of interpreters that have preceded us in the church who have also received their primary language of faith through the scripture. Right. I think that the classical standoff reflects this earlier discussion we had about is the Pope the absolute authority or is the Bible the absolute authority? Either or. And we called that a sterile confrontation, uh, which doesn't get us anywhere. It just locks us into these fixed polemical positions and so forth. When in fact we know today uh, by the historical criticism of the Bible that the Bible is a codification of tr- of tradition, uh, the, the right there's even a discipline called tradition history that examines the Bible from this perspective, and Paul himself is unashamed to appeal to the paradosis, the tradition. I handed on to you what was first handed on to me, namely that according to the scriptures, Christ died, etc., 1 Corinthians 15. The, uh, the uh, great Dutch-American scholar Heiko Obermann long ago demolished this false antithesis between scripture and tradition uh, in some important studies. <clears throat> So I would say if we identify the solus Christus, if we identify the gospel of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus as the word of God, which explicates all the other many words of God found in the Bible, if we agree on the solus Christus, then we have the hermeneutical key to rightly engaging with Scripture as the matrix of our faith as giving us the primary language of faith. And if we have that in common, then our disagreements between various Christian traditions can become productive deliberations and disagreements rather than sterile ones that lead to an increase of hostility. I think that's exactly right. And uh, of course, the great progress was made between Lutherans and Catholics in the joint declaration on justification with this kind of a method, and to which the Methodists have signed on, the World Reformed Alliance has signed on, somebody else has. The Anglicans, yeah. the Anglicans affirmed it, affirmed it in substance, yeah. Well, so it, it, ironically, in making this uh, claim for ecumenical deliberation, I am going to uh, qu- uh, quote Luther to support it. I hope I shall be forgiven by our non-Lutheran listeners. But um, I think this what's really nicely summarized here, this whole point, um, Luther and the freedom of a Christian, um, he takes up, and I think this is, is really the key point, he, he poses the question, 
what is the word of God and how shall it be used since there are so many words of God? And in a way, this is what, you know, my, my three uh, difficult examples from the scripture were, is just showing, look at all these words of God within the big word of God that is the Bible. How are, my, how, how are they holy and how am I supposed to think about them? What am I supposed to do with them? And for Luther, the answer is essentially the solus Christus answer, the, the Christ only answer. Uh, and he goes on in the freedom of a Christian to say, you know, it's, it's just right out of Romans 1. The word is the gospel of God concerning his son, who was made flesh, suffered, rose from the dead, and was glorified through the spirit who sanctifies. I mean, you have the whole thing right there, the Trinity, the narrative of salvation. That is the, the center points that it is the plot, it is the main characters, and everything else is uh, interpreted through that that fundamental insight into what the story is really about. Yeah, super. And you notice that that quotation from Romans chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, I think it is. Paul is quoting there from an early Christian creedal formulation. There's another false antithesis then that comes up with the scripture versus tradition, and that is to say the Bible only is my creed, the other creeds are all man-made accretions. Again, that kind of Islamic critique that's been internalized by certain kinds of Protestantism, Bible only, no creeds. Well, the creeds are already being articulated right in the literature of the New Testament. Here's an, here's, here's an example from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which if you look in your English Bibles is probably versified. And it begins, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So this is a confession of faith. We confess the mystery of godliness. And then it continues. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, end quote. There, too, you have an early Christian creedal formulation. And you have the plot with the basic characters identified. Exactly. Uh, And here's an interesting thought. I developed this in my book called Divine Complexity, The Rise of Creedal Christianity. Uh, when you look in the second century at the uh, early the Apostolic Father Ignatius of Antioch, and then later in the century at the Church Father Irenaeus, they were engaged in a great dispute with the first early Christian heresy, which was called Docetism. That was the teaching that Jesus only seemed to be human. Uh, it was he was. His human appearance was really a phantom, uh, docetism, and that correlated with a view of God that, that is called Gnosticism. And here there are two eternal principles, a, 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 a good world of light and an evil world of darkness and matter. And these were coeval uh, powers in constant dispute with each other. And if you're thinking this way, God is not the creator of everything that's not God. God is the opposite of all that's darkness and material. And then if you're thinking salvation is to get out of this dark and material world and go up into the world 
divine world of brightness and light, you can't have a Jesus who really came in the flesh. You've got to turn Jesus into a phantom, a hologram, or something like that. And to battle this first massive deviation from the apostolic faith, Ignatius and then later Irenaeus appealed to what they called the rule of faith. The Apostle Paul at the end of Galatians articulates his own, in the Greek language, canon, rule of faith. But they took up the idea of a rule of faith. And what they were referring to was the confession of faith that early Christians made when they were baptized. And it went something like this. Do you renounce the devil with all his pomp and circumstance? I do. Do you believe in God the Father? I do. Do you believe in God the Son, etc.? I do. Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? I do. And so the threefold confession of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, coupled with the renunciation of Satan, was the rule of faith which was affirmed in early Christian baptism. Now, this is before there's ever a New Testament. That's the point I'm getting at. And so when Ignatius and Irenaeus in the second century had to argue what books are genuine and belong in the New Testament and what books are uh, creations of the heretics, the Docetists and the Gnostics, they appealed to the creed, the baptismal creed as the rule of faith by which they admitted or did not admit books into the canon of the New Testament. Yeah, that reminds me very much um, one of my New Testament professors in seminary uh, was at one point talking about, you know, later, like the Gospel of Judas or Thomas or whatever, these alternate extra canonical writings. And he made to me what was a very simple but powerful point that, you know why those aren't in the canon? because they didn't give life to the community. It's not some big conspiracy to shut them up or whatever. It's that they are not life-giving. They did not make the community of the church in relationship with the holy God of Israel who had sent his son grow and live and flourish. And so they simply dropped off the radar and ceased to be important. And I thought that was a really striking way of combining this actual lived experience of the church with the um, external witness and word of God's action in the world towards salvation. Well, what a wonderful note on which to conclude today. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's stop there. I think we've uh, hit about an hour. Anyway. The answer to the question, are the scriptures holy, you just gave to us. The scriptures are holy when they're used by the Spirit uh, to edify, to build up the community in faith, hope, and love. Amen. Great. Amen. And Next time, we will take up in more detail the Gospel of Mark, which um, by no environmental or genetic factor, but purely by coincidence, is the favorite gospel for both Dad and me. So that will be our topic for next time. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.